Morning. Everybody get a bulletin? The new shiny bulletin? Thank you. We designed that ourselves. Uh, perforated goodness. Do you guys see that? Uh, my name is Derek. I'm the pastor here, and I'm plugging the bulletin, obviously. Um, we're starting a new series today called The Kingdom, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But um, on the back, we've just left it blank for you, and um, so you can take notes. I don't put outlines on there because I feel like sometimes that tells you what to hear. Uh, and I, I kind of think there's some mystery in preaching that you hear what you need to hear. And so maybe just write down some things um, as, they, as they speak to you and challenge you. You can see at the bottom of the notes page where we're headed today, where it says neighboring doesn't depend on where you live, but how you live. And so uh, that's where we're going, and you'll, you'll get a chance to uh, process that as we move through it. And um, so that is that. I'm very excited about the bulletin. All right. Uh, all kinds of good stuff in there that you, you need to catch up on. And, and, and if you have a prayer concern or whatever that we can pray for you about as a staff this week, that's in there too. You can fill that out and drop it in the uh, offering buckets boxes later in the service. Um, this series that we're starting today will last five Sundays, and let me just tell you a little bit about it, and then I'm going to have you stand up and stretch and move in so that late people can find a seat. Um, not you, of course, because you're here. <laughs> Barely. Um, it's not talking to me. The, um, it's going to last five Sundays. The culmination will be beyond Sunday on November the 13th, um, at which I will not talk about mission work. Uh, I will talk about generosity. It's very simple. Um, the first three weeks of this series go like this. We're going to talk about neighbors today, city next week. And on October 30th, we're going to talk about the world and our partnership with God's work around the world. So the missions sermon is actually two weeks before Beyond Sunday. Um, and then uh, that night, as Adam said, we'll have our night of worship, our third and final one of the year. Uh, however, our student ministry is doing a night of worship in here in December with some churches from uh, around the city, so that's going to be pretty awesome. Uh, same band, younger audience, um, <laughs> and less engaged, probably. Uh, so, <laughs> this is lame. Uh, so that's happening, but that particular night, as Adam said, most of our missionaries will be here. I mean, we've flown several of them home. Uh, thank you for your donations to help us do that. Um, and they'll be in this room so that we can pray with them and for them and over them, and that's going to be pretty cool. Um, so you'll get a chance to meet them and, and see them and hear from them. So this is a pretty extraordinary series. I mean, this whole thing is bound up in this um, idea of the kingdom, which is the thing that Jesus taught the most about. And so we're going to unpack just a little bit of that um, today. So that's coming up. One more plug, then I'll have you say hello to some people. Uh, do you guys remember our drummer, Austin, back here? Yeah, remember how we prayed for him? He was going to Germany. Well, he's still here, obviously. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's not that, like, he's not going. It's just the fundraising trail. I mean, it's, a, it's an arduous trail. But uh, he's still here among us, and he... Uh, he has set up a booth out there. You may have walked by it and seen it, but just where he's headed in Germany, um, as soon as he can get there, uh, please stop. He'll be back there after service today. So we didn't want you to think that we just pray for people arbitrarily and make up stories, um, but uh, he will be as soon as, as soon as he can be leaving. So that's why he's still with us. But um, is that good? Is that a good plug? Awesome. Y'all missed it first service because Jamie, oh, November 6th. Yeah. Welcome. This is like a studio session. Just kind of see what happens. Um, November the 6th is, will be Jamie Vernon, who's our group life pastor. It will be his last and final sermon here at CCB uh, because he and his family, as many of you know, are going to be leaving us after the end of the year to uh, start a church in the Tri-Cities area of Hapeville College Park in East Point. And so we've put him right in this series because obviously if you look on the back of the card, he's one of our supported missionaries. Isn't that weird? From established pastor in a church to you're now on the missions list. Um, my first entire full-time year of youth ministry was paid for by my wife's home church. I was working for this tiny church that on Easter, like 60 people came, and I was there for three years. And one of those years, was I was on somebody's missions list. That was so weird. Um, 
but he'll be, but he'll be doing his final sermon here on the 6th, so you do not want to miss that as you get to hear a little bit about what, a lot about what God's been doing in their family, and, uh, and they start tonight, actually, with their first small group in their home in Hapeville, which I just think is amazing, and uh, so we're pretty excited about that, and what we did first service, I can't do it twice because it would be trite, but I found in the closet back there this orange flashlight, and there was a sticker on it that said theater number two. (laughs) So the six of you who are laughing are going back in time to when our church was in the theater. And so I handed that off to him as if to say, here's to starting a church. So uh, he has a broken flashlight. So welcome aboard. Say hello to some people. Stand up, walk around, and then uh, we'll get into this. Have a seat. Let's do this. The disciples of Jesus, there were 12, not counting the women. And um, they approached him and said these words, as you'll find on the screen. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. So we all have people in our life that when we hear them pray out loud, or some anyway, some, we have some people that when we hear them pray, we think, I wish I could pray like that. Right? Do you have anybody like that? Like when you hear them say certain things to God and the way that they speak to God and like the depth of the relationship, like you hear them and you think, I, if I could pray like that, then I would be making some steps forward in my spiritual life. Am I humming, by the way? I'm howling. So we have these people that, again, and we have some people that we hear them pray and we think, I don't know what they're doing. But there are some that um, they just exhibit like a depth in the relationship. I'm back in school, by the way, doing some more grad school, trying to finish what I started. The timing is great. We just had a baby. Um, (laughs) I'm chasing you people around and I'm in school. Uh, just a couple of classes at a time because of the, of the load. But the first night of um, an Old Testament class, the professor prayed. He said, let us pray. And this is what he prayed. Uh, he said, Lord, as we wrestle with the scriptures, let us, like Jacob, come out of this blessed, even if we end up wounded. And in a very spiritual moment, I wrote that down. And like, I wish I could pray like that, you know, because I just sort of pray the basics oftentimes. So you have this picture that the disciples had been watching Jesus, listening to Jesus, following him and seeing how he's praying. And they approach him and say, teach us to do that. But notice the next part of the request that uh, they, they had to Jesus. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Now, teachers would often teach their disciples, their students, certain prayers, Uh, Sometimes just a single prayer would be taught to disciples. And John the Baptist is what he's talking about here. His disciples obviously had a prayer that they prayed that they they were taught by him. And so the teacher would teach their students, their disciples, the prayer uh, or a series of prayers, and they would say these in their devotional life. And they weren't just a connection to uh, their teacher, like my teacher taught me this prayer and how to pray this prayer. But it was a signal to everyone else listening that you are so-and-so's disciple. Are you with me on that? So if you pray a certain prayer that has been taught to you by your teacher, then those who know your teacher say you are a student of that teacher or that master. Or later in history, 
your rabbi. Um, and so Jesus taught us this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Notice it on the screen. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is the prayer that Jesus taught. Lord, teach us to pray. And then this is what he gives them. Say this. Pray this way. And this is the Jesus prayer. So if you went to Roasters for lunch today and you stood up in the middle of the restaurant before your meal and you said this prayer out loud, after people sort of think you're weird, they will say, oh, that's the Jesus prayer. Right? That's the Christian prayer. So to say this prayer is to identify yourself with Jesus. Our friend and rabbi here, Derek Lehman, says the, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer is the mark of Jesus on the lips of his disciples. So to say the Lord's Prayer is to identify yourself with Jesus, but it is also to identify yourself with the mission of what God is doing in the world. Notice the prayer. Notice what's happening, because this prayer is full of pictures of what God is doing in our world. There's forgiveness. These are out of order. There's forgiveness of sins, not just from him to us, but from us to others. That often what God is doing through the world is also happening through us and our friends and neighbors. There's provision. Give us our daily bread. My son and I are working through this prayer at home, and I was like, do you know what that means? I guess I get bread. Good enough. But it's, it's, it's just a phrase for providing for what I need. And then there's this thing at the end about don't lead us into temptations. A better word for that is trials. Keep us, keep us clear of those trials. But if we're in them, deliver us from those. And then the section we're going to focus on this month is this. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's just say that together. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Next slide, broken down for you. Kingdom, earth, heaven. Now, kingdom is the thing that Jesus taught the most about. So when you're reading his teachings, you're going to find that most of them fall into this category of the kingdom of heaven is like this, or it's like that, or it's like that over there, or it's like this person, or it's like this story. And so Jesus teaches a lot about the kingdom, but what is the kingdom? Often misinterpreted as some sort of militaristic kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus spoke about is simply the ways and the rule and the reign of God in the world. God's kingdom is simply his desires for creation, for life, relationships, coming forth in the midst of our own world. To talk about God's kingdom is to talk about God's ways winning of grace and mercy and peace, justice, and salvation. And so knowing that, to pray this prayer, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, is to want God's ways to come, to show up. Not just in our own lives, like we're growing as people, but we want to see God's kingdom flow throughout the earth, like his ways bursting forth in the midst of our own lives. That's what we want to see. So to pray this prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is to not just want it, but it's to identify yourself with being a part of that. It's very, it's very profound when we pray those words. If you get emails from me, sometimes if you read below my, my, my signature, it just says, in Atlanta as it is in heaven. It's just a reworking of the prayer. It makes it more local for me because to pray this doesn't always work for me. So I have to put the words in there, the places, the people, and so forth. And you're allowed to do that. And as a church, to set it up this way, this church was planted here in this part of the city in 2004, not so that we could learn a bunch of songs and be in small groups and go on mission trips. But it was put here so that we can be a part of seeing God's kingdom transform the lives of our neighbors and our city and our world. Does that make sense? Lots of money, lots of time, lots of blood, sweat, and tears were put into this church, as in every church when it's planted, to see God's kingdom come 
on a small footprint of the world. And we want to see, as a reminder, we want to see God's kingdom transform the lives of these three things, our neighbors, our city, and our world. And some of these will cross over each other. And today I want to talk about neighbors. That's a bit of an introduction. Turn to Matthew 9, uh, if you would. Page number should be on the screen. And this is a very short story, just a few verses. Um, I was reminded when I was uh, preparing this that I've preached this text here before, but it was before I worked here. The pastor had left town and said, would you come and preach for me? I said, sure. I said, what's the text? He said, it's Matthew 9, 9 through 13. I said, what's the setup? What are you doing? He said, well, we're launching these things called, called uh, Matthew parties. And I said, what is a Matthew party? And he said, well, it's a party you throw for people who aren't Christians or whatever. I was like, okay, fine. And so uh, I start digging through the text, and I'm looking through it. And I remember entitling the sermon. If you were there, maybe you can, like, chime in and give me a ride on if you remember this. But the title of the sermon I preached that day, and this was probably in 2005 or something, is the, the title was, You Don't Throw Keg Parties for Rabbis. <laughs> was anybody here for that? Got a couple people. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> so that was the title of the sermon. I think in parentheses it said, or maybe you do, but I can't remember. Um, but this is a fantastic story that is very uh, Jesus-like. It's very typical of Jesus' behavior. And, um, but there's some great lessons in here. And actually, I have three lessons for us today. Um, so I have three points with uh, sub-points. It's amazing. All right. So let me just read this story to you very quickly, and then we're going to break it down, uh, and you can take some notes along the way if you would like. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth or his table. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. So this is Jesus' standard invitation to be his disciple. Now we often see the response to his invitation as very movie-like and unreal, like, follow me, yes sir, and he gets him and walks away and leaves all his stuff. But you have to remember, these people knew Jesus. It's not just a cold call like, hello, do you own a vacuum cleaner? Let me pour some dirt on your floor. And It's not one of those things. There's a relationship here. And so Jesus comes and officially asks him, look, follow me. I want, I want you to be under me. Let me teach you. Let me guide you. Let me grow you. All right? And also tells us that Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew's also Jewish. So to be a tax collector and Jewish is a very interesting thing in the Roman Empire. Most Jews hated you because of that. And as you'll see in a moment, because Matthew is Jewish and because he is a tax collector, and tax collectors just weren't appreciated in their own time, by the way, they tended to huddle together for warmth. They just typically hung out. And so Jesus comes to him and says, follow me, and he does. And again, he's a tax collector leaving that job of probably a decent income. Not all tax collectors make good money, but... There are some, as we know, like Zacchaeus, who was very wealthy. But again, to be Jewish and in that setting was to be lost morally and religiously because the whole system was scandalous. And then it says in verse 10, as he, this is scene two, as he, Jesus, sat at dinner in the house, this is Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, very common combination in scriptures, those two people, came and were sitting with him and his disciples. So the next scene is Jesus is in the home of Matthew. And again, who's Matthew going to invite? All the other people just like him. So it's not just Christians aren't the only people that sort and group and huddle up. Everybody does that. Everybody does that. And so here we have this scene of Matthew with all his tax collector friends and some sinners thrown in there. I'd like to know what that, that's all about. I mean, was that entertainment? Like, I don't know. Like... Here come the sinners, but they're there. And then it says in verse 11, uh, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, quote, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now let's just stop here for a moment. We often take Pharisees and throw them into the fire, but Jesus was friends with a lot of Pharisees. One of them actually lent, lent him his tomb. And so it's not as though they're bad guys. And this question is actually, in context, a legitimate question. Because in this day and age, to eat with someone, to share a meal with someone, was to 
announce that you like this person, you agree with who they are, and you approve of them. So it's coming from a cultural setting that makes complete sense. This is not an offensive or even a condescending question. The Pharisees are just saying, look, we want to understand something about Jesus. How do his teachings about a certain kind of life and about God and, of course, about himself, how does that correspond with his dealings with certain kinds of people? That's all we want to know. We just want to know how the two come together because for us, culturally and religiously, it just seems a little weird. So the question shouldn't be read as they've got stones in their hands and they want Jesus to give the wrong answer. So they just simply say to him, can you just help us understand the story? And then notice Jesus' response in verse uh, 12 and 13. We'll read the whole thing and then break it down into a couple of parts. He says, uh, but when he heard this, he said, quote, uh, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. In other words, those who are sick don't need a doctor, or those who are sick need a doctor, those who are well don't need a doctor. So it's Kind of a nice, yet cryptic, like, what is he talking about? And then he says to them, go and learn what this means, quote, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then he adds, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus, in the first part here, he teaches them this lesson, uh, which consequently today has three parts, that we can all learn from and uh, that we can all gain something from. And basically what he tells them is that he is exactly where he needs to be, not just with people who are close to him and who know him and who agree with him and love him, but also with people who were far from him and who may not have seen him for who he was. So that's the setup into what uh, he teaches us in this short little statement about what he's doing and why he's doing it. I read this book years ago called be Our Guest, and it was written by the Disney Institute, so there you go. But it was this inside look at their um, strategy of hospitality, and their strategy as a park to make you, when you're at the park, love it. Has anybody ever been to Disney World? Anybody love Disney World? Okay, so we got a few fans, all right. Six Flags, is that better, worse? Okay. Um, so we go to Disney World every Thanksgiving. That's our family thing. And um, all of our sons getting older, and we're like, do you want to go? Yes, okay, good. Because we're going to go either way. But <laughs> we don't want to be uncool, you know. And like, uh, So if you go, it, it's mostly like this in Florida, not so much in um, L.A. It's a little different. The park is smaller. It's older. It's just not as put together with the same philosophy as the one in Orlando. So this book is basically about that. And so uh, if you go, it's, um, it's a pretty magnificent experience because not only is the park very big, but once you get in the park, um, it just kind of feels like the world goes away. And that's intentional. They have this phrase they use throughout the book. It's called uh, inside the berm. And the berm is both this figurative and also literal thing at the park where the edge of the park property is built up either through buildings or actual landscaping, but it's a berm and it hides you from the rest of the world. So even if you get up close, it's kind of like this Truman Show moment where you don't really, you can't really see, sorry, that was for the older people, you can't quite see what's really out there. And uh, part of preserving the magic in the park is making the real world invisible. That's part of preserving the magic. The longer you're in the park, the less you think about the outside world, mainly because you can't see it. That's the purpose of the berm. It blocks out everything that contradicts the ethos of the park. That's the point. And when you finally do leave, it's a shock to the system. The first thing you notice when you leave the park after four or five days is how dirty that gas station is. That's the first thing you notice. Because when you're in the park, you're in an environment that's always remodeling and always fixing itself up and making it perfect to the eye. I learned that at night, painters come in and paint the things that have been scratched up that day. Now, Jamie, our group life pastor, and I were talking about this, and he envisioned a blue bird flying down with a paintbrush in its mouth (laughs) to repaint the door handle. I like that idea. Um, A very Narnian moment. But when you leave, it's a shock. It takes a few days to reacclimate to what it was like outside. 
Now, all that to say, and you can probably, you've probably already guessed where I'm going, there is also a religious berm. You can be born into a Christian family, go to a Christian school, graduate and attend a Christian college, go to church your whole life. You can spend the first 21, 22, 23 years of your life never breaching the berm of the church world, and when you finally do, it's a shock to the system. 16, 17 years of youth ministry, 50% of my last youth group was homeschooled. I'm not knocking homeschool, but that's just the way it was. And I had very real conversations with parents saying, let me just let you in on something that your children think youth group is like worldly. And it was a little. But make sure it's not safe, it's not smart to have their first experience out in the real world, quote unquote, be their first week of college. That's just too much to handle. Goodbye. Again, I'm not knocking it. I'm just warning. That's what happens. And we can do that religiously too. We can surround our whole existence with church stuff that we, the, the rest of the world becomes invisible. Are you with me? Now, it's not just the church that does that. I, I want to be clear that every part of culture does that. They don't see other cultures. But Jesus comes in with a different message here saying, Look, I'm exactly where I need to be. Therefore, you should do the same. Let me give you three things that Jesus teaches here. One is that he's saying to his disciples and to us that part of the action in your faith is outside of the berm. Part of it's outside. Not all of it. Because what's happening in the church, and we'll just talk about modern church for a moment, what's happening in this service is amazing. It's divine. It should be a part of our life's schedule and priority. It should be a part of our routine. It's a discipline that everyone in this room, you know, the gathering with your church family, that should be a priority. Even in the first century when the church was fresh, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, don't give up meeting together as some are already doing. So even in the first century, we have this fading away of consistency. I got a text from um, one of our own people yesterday, and I texted her back, and I said, can I use this tomorrow? I won't use your name. And she said, totally. And this is what she said. They, her job moved her to work on Sundays, and so she hasn't been here in a long time. And she said, good morning, how is the family? And she said, I want you to know that I really miss going to church. And she said, I know that I can worship anywhere, quietly and whatever, but it's just different being in the building with people. Now, let me say this so I can clear, I, I want to be clear because what I'm going to say after this may sound unclear, but let me be very clear about what I think about being in church and being a part of the church so, that, so I'm not misunderstood. And this is a pastoral moment you may feel, but let me just say this. I'm one of those people, call me old school, call me crazy, but I think you should be in church every Sunday. Every Sunday. A, because it isn't about you, actually. It's about us. And if you are in town, in Atlanta, on the weekend, you should be here. If you travel on the weekends, you should find a church somewhere. Just hotels got them. Just look them up. Go drop yourself into a community and worship. That's just, who I, that's just what I think. And we have a culture, not just in our church, but in general, where it's just not a priority. But I'm just one of those people who thinks and believes that it should be a priority and that you should be here. And this text from this person is confirmation that it does begin to affect you if you're not. It begins to wear and tear on who you are. Because what's happening in here is a very small picture of what God wants for the whole world, which is that everyone knows him and worships him. And worship means to live a life to the fullest of its planned and designed purpose, which is simply community with God. So I want to say all that to say, to not be misunderstood when I say this. It's not just about this, though. As Jesus points out, you need to go where the needs are as well, and oftentimes they're not in here, or at least not present. And we assume sometimes that these men that Jesus is having dinner with aren't 
they don't have a faith system, but that's not true. I mean, again, Matthew was Jewish, and maybe all of them had deep roots in faith. We don't know. We don't know their stories. It doesn't give us that. It just says tax collectors and sinners. But maybe because of their chosen career and lifestyle that their faith had taken some kind of hit. And it could have been weakened in some way, which you can identify with the word sickness. They're sick. Not sick and twisted. It's easy to read it and think, what is Jesus saying about people? But just, they're not well spiritually. And so Jesus is pointing out to his disciples and to us that there is a, there is a, a magnificent need to leave the berm and to get in on the action of people's lives right around them. Number two, and this is a very short point. It sort of makes the point itself. But the gospel, the message of Jesus, the person of Jesus, the gospel has transformative power. It has the power to transform lives. And I know this sounds crazy, and maybe it's a point of admission, but sometimes even as a pastor, I forget that. Like, I just forget that the story of Jesus has the power to transform people's lives. I forget that. Maybe you forget that too. I'd like to invite them to church, but like, why? Because it's transformative. It has the power to change lives. Not just through grace and mercy and peace and justice, but ultimately through salvation. It's transformative in its message that God so loved the whole world that he gave his son that he breached heaven and came to earth. And it's transformative in its mission to bring salvation to the whole world. There's a a line in the book of Isaiah where it says, it just talks about just the coming of God's kingdom and it ends with, as the waters cover the sea. What does that mean? The sea is already covered with water. But as the Lord's waters cover the sea, like everything is made new through God. That the gospel has the power to transform lives. And Jesus is saying that when he says, it's not, the, it's not the well who need a physician. It's those who are sick and not doing well. And what I have to give them can transform that. And then he says this in verse 13. Look at it again. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners. He says to them, well, he quotes Hosea 6. Let me show you the full text. Next slide. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He ends there. He says, go and learn what that means. But these are Pharisees. They knew the scriptures. They knew what the rest said. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So Jesus gives them this theological starting point, like, go and discuss this. And tell me what it means that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Well, the answer is in the rest of the text. An acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, if you're a Jew, the word sacrifice and the words burnt offerings, those are that's language for worship. That's what they do. They go to the temple and they do those things. They sacrifice. They do a burnt offering. They burn stuff. It's their act of worship. But even in the Old Testament prophets, we find, particularly in Amos, but Hosea does it too, where he says, basically, God's saying, look, the worship service you're doing, fine, great, whatever. But that's not what I truly desire. I desire the first part, mercy. Some versions say steadfast love for people. Not just sacrifice, not just your burnt offerings, that's great. But what I truly desire is this. And keep in mind that Jesus is not downplaying this in here. He's just reminding us that what happens in here has transformative power out there. That we have to take this with us into the worlds that we inhabit. And so again, we find Jesus, just looking back at the story very quickly and then I'll conclude. We find Jesus asking Matthew into the close circle of disciples. And what we learn about Matthew is that his friends are people just like him, which are also tax collectors, and then throw in some sinners. So this is the environment that Jesus finds himself in, having dinner with these people and his disciples. And the Pharisees are watching, of course. 
And they say, hey, help us put this together. Like, what's the story with Jesus hanging out with these people? And Jesus doesn't yell at them or berate them. He just says, look, these people need what I have. And I love you guys, he's saying, but sometimes I, I got to go here. And then he teaches them something they already know and struggle with. Go learn what this means, that I desire mercy, not just your worship and sacrifice. I mean, that's pretty formative. I mean, you can walk out of here today just, okay, God desires from me this and not just this. And if we want to see God's kingdom come and bring transformation to the lives of the people we know, neighbors, then we have to listen to the teaching of Jesus here and respond by doing the same, which is this. We have to make time and room to be with them. As a church, we will end up living an utterly ineffective, irrelevant existence if we simply hole up in this room and perfect our worship and lose sight and touch with the imperfection that is outside of this room. Irrelevant. Why do churches die? I have all kinds of theories, but one of them is that. They're in the berm. And they want to maintain perfection. And they lose sight. And in so many ways and in so many instances, Jesus showed his disciples and us that our eyes and ears must be open to the people around us, many of which are hurting beneath the surface of a nice car, a well-kept home, and a pretty smile on the way to the mailbox. So there's an art to listening to our neighbors, to getting into their lives, like just a small example here of Jesus, getting into the lives of people that otherwise we would never cross paths with and listening to them, and listening to our neighborhoods, which is a profound idea. But it's a skill that we're called to develop. Because the gospel is transformative in its message of grace and mercy and its mission to bring salvation to the world, period. And oddly enough, and perhaps unfairly enough, God has left that mission in our hands. You can do it. I want you to do it. I want you to take this message to the world. Questions, not you asking me questions, although that could be fun. But let me ask you some questions, and I want to close with a story uh, from one of our own people. But these aren't very profound, but they're just some replays of some questions that we asked back in January when we did a series called Neighboring. But do you know your neighbors? Or are they just people? Do you pray for them? I think that's a great place to start, just beginning to pray for your neighbors. Do you seek out ways to serve them? I mean, don't feel guilty if all these are no. Just, just internalize them. If there was some sort of emergency in your neighbor's life, would they call you? Could they call you? Would you even know it? We had two neighbors... I don't know if they were married or not, but they lived together above us and over one, right when we moved into our building. And I'm just going to be honest with you, they were weird. And the husband slash, I don't know, man person, um, he, when he walked by me, or anybody for that matter, he just always looked at the ground. Um, and I would, you know, because <laughs> I'm that guy, you know. We're going to be friends, all right? Uh, but I would say hey to him like every, every time I saw him. And he would not respond. I mean, like it's weird, y'all. At the mailbox. Hey. It's just, it's just weird. So I just, I just stopped. I just, you know, forget it. You know, whatever. I'll move on, which he didn't care either. So, <laughs> but there was this one time where, um, and this this there are these situations all the time in our building. But 
they started fighting, like, and I, I don't know where it was, but you would hear the door slam a lot, and he would just walk out and get his car and drive off. And, then, and you know, I'm like an amateur psychologist at the lowest level. But I'm like, something's wrong with that dude. <laughs> and um, so one day he just left, never came back. And so it took me a while because I had this mental gymnastic thing going on, like, I'm not going to ask what happened. I'm not going to ask what happened. I need to ask what happened. Or maybe I just need to ask everything's okay. And then here comes the wife, and it's like, I don't, I'm not going to say anything. How you doing? Okay, good. And I just let it go. But one day, I said, I went up to her unit, and I knocked on the door, and she answered, and I said, hey, is everything okay? And this is what she said. No. Okay. And that was the end of it. It didn't go any further because she's very shy, and it was just like this, like, I don't, I don't know what else to say. If, and I, I, I do remember saying, if there's anything that you need, we're just down here in this unit. And she said, thanks, and that was the end of it. And again, the exercise of, do I even ask what's going on, you know, or do I not? Um, Let me introduce you to somebody you may already know, but his name is Parker. And uh, he's in the middle there. Um, Parker is a friend of mine, and he is uh, a former CCBer, was here for a few years, ran sound in the back. Um, and we're good friends. We talk every day, at least through text messaging uh, or phone calls every now and then. And he quit his job here back in the spring and moved to Tallahassee, Florida to go to FSU. Anybody FSU fans? It, okay. Um, <laughs> to, to do some PhD work, some. Like, you know, just do a little to do his PhD work. And... Um, it's going to dabble in PhD work, but so that's where he's at. He's going to be down there for a few years, and uh, one of the most formative series for him that we did in this room was back in January. We did the series called Neighboring Where You Live Matters, and um, we did a lot of talk in that series about the vision to see and hear and the ears to hear your neighbors. Just very simple, like God's calling us to listen and to see uh, the people around us so that we can become his hands and feet in their lives. And this was, for, for many people, but for him, was a very, a very formative series for him. And so he met with me, and then he emailed me these long um, emails about when he sold his home and moved to Tallahassee, he, he decided that he was going to go down there and to live with his eyes open and his ears open to his neighbors, which he admittedly had not done uh, as much as he wanted to here. Um, particularly, there was a sermon in that series about the captives in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, and how they basically were living lives with their suitcases in their hands, packed and ready to go back to Jerusalem, because that was the best place to live. And Babylon was this horrible city, or a series of cities, where they had to live. They were in exile, but it was temporary. They had been told they'd go home, but not yet. But they kind of walked around a few feet off the ground, never really putting roots in. And the message of God through the prophet Jeremiah was very discouraging for the Israelites because God said, look, I don't want you to think you're leaving. I want you to live as though you're staying here forever. I want you to build homes, have kids, marry, marry, have kids. I want you to plant vineyards, build houses. And then he has this phrase in there where it says, I want you to seek the peace of the city and pray for it, the one you're living in. Pray for it. Live permanently, even though you're temporary. So he said, I'm in Tallahassee, few years, tops, but I'm going to be permanent mentally and spiritually. I'm going to put roots down and talk to people and get to know them. And the prayer was simply that God would use him in some way in, in, that, in those decisions that he made. And we call that neighboring around here. So here's one story. He sent me a series of three. I emailed him back, and I said, can I use this one? And he said, totally. So here's the story. He said, my neighbor is a single mom with a high school daughter. Her husband left her for another woman a little over a year ago. She worked part-time retail and couldn't make ends meet. So she moved her daughter to a new state because her sister and brother-in-law have a one-bedroom unit they can use rent-free. She was trying to find full-time work when her sister was diagnosed with breast cancer. 
she put uh, the search for a job on hold and jumped in uh, to help with the, uh, the at-home nursing duties during surgery and the chemo recovery periods afterwards. Now, how does he know that? How do you find that out? I mean, it's not in the association handbook. Unit number 44, here's her story. You have to ask. You have to get to know them. Next part. She was plugging along but felt trapped and admitted it was hard to make sense of what God's plan was in all of this. We talked about faith and scripture and swapped stories of what God had brought us through before. Now, how do you get there? I mean, that's not day two. Like, oh, I met her, she dropped this story, and now we're talking about Jesus. That's not day two. That's a relational journey. And then he says, one night I walked outside and I found her standing on the sidewalk, tears in her eyes, staring off into the distance. I listened as she described yet another hurdle. Her estranged husband had been providing support in the form of continuing to make car and auto insurance payments. Apparently, however, he stopped. He fell behind in the car payments, and the car had been repossessed that morning, which she didn't realize until she walked outside to go to work. I told her my truck was hers whenever she needed it but was at a loss for a long-term solution beyond prayer. Again, how do you get there? Talking to my mother later, he says, I told her the story and I asked her to pray too, because what else do you do? The next day, he says, I got a phone call. This is so cool. To make a long story short, in a Ruth and Boaz-like, as it turned out moment, which... I don't know if he put that in there to say, I'm really listening to your sermons online. Uh, I just want you to know. But either way, it was straight on awesome right here. In a Ruth and Boaz-like, as it turned out moment, my cousin's car had just been donated to my parents' home church for their mechanics ministry. It was still in the parking lot, awaiting repairs and a tune-up, and had yet to be designed, designated to a recipient. Now that's cool, but that's not it. In a matter of weeks, my neighbor and I and her daughter were in my hometown, which is not in Tallahassee, by the way, which means they had to travel. We're in my hometown. We're circled around the car with the church staff being prayed over and sent on her way with the new car, six months of insurance payments donated, gas money, and a powerful statement that God provides for his children. That's a cool story. But that story doesn't happen if he doesn't know her. Are you with me? It can't happen. She just spirals. So it's it's just as simple and also as terrifyingly complicated as I got to get outside of the berm and meet people. I think Jesus sometimes is saying in a very profound way that the world can die while we're stuck in our Bible studies. It can just fade away into an invisible state while we're being fattened up with his wonderful word and great music, all of which God loves. But there has to be a balance of sacrifice and mercy. Amen? Don't feel guilty because I know that what I just said is very, very in, in the heart of things. But feel inspired that God wants to see his kingdom come as well. And he wants to see that come not just through the efforts of CCB, but every person who calls himself a disciple of Jesus. And in this city, which we'll talk about next week, we play a major part in that. Major part. And so my prayer is that you will begin to wrestle with, as I will as well, this call to be where we need to be, which isn't always here, although, as I said earlier, you need to be here. But this is only an hour-ish. The rest of our world and the rest of our lives need to be used for his glory among the people who need it and are praying for it. Because you never know, people. You never know that 
You never know what God will do just through a simple, how you doing question. So just keep that locked in as we move through this series. And let me just say this as, a, as we close, um, as we move to communion uh, at the tables around the room. Keep this in mind as you do that. As you approach these tables, keep this in mind that there is not a person you will ever meet for whom Christ did not die. No one. The Scriptures tell us, Jesus tells us in John 3.16, that for God so loved the whole world, the word for world there is cosmos. It's this magnificent word that just says everything. For God so loved everything that He's created, that He gave His only Son. And as we move to the tables and take the bread and the juice today, let's make sure that we're awake to that truth and the depth of God's love, not just for us in this room, but also for the world our neighbors, the people that we do life with and around. And let this remind us of God's mission in the world, which is to bring redemption and salvation and healing to those who are sick, not doing well. That's the call. Let me pray, and then you can take communion. God, thank you for this day, and thank you for the challenge of uh, balancing worship and sacrifice with mercy on people's lives. And mercy just being the, the posture of grace. Listening, uh, you know, the art of listening and understanding. And not judging, but guiding people back to you. And Father, as we uh, do what we do every week, when we take the bread and the juice, let it remind us that although we are a part of your mission, that you came here and you died for us, that we may know who you are, that your mission is not complete. And the bread and the juice are symbols of a story that's still being written. As your scripture says, we, we do this until you come. We take this bread and this juice until you come, which means that this is still happening. And that we play a part, not only in our own redemption and salvation, but we are storytellers of that same grace and salvation to the world. And so, Father, as we move to these four tables, just fill this room with an awareness of who you are and uh, how much you love and care for each of us. But God, give us the strength to take that into the worlds we inhabit. And it's in your name that we pray, and amen.